Well, good morning. How was Thanksgiving? Good. <laughs> Some good answers there. I know for us it was a bit different this year, but, uh, but still good and still so much to be thankful for. Uh, you know, I think it's harder for us who have been around a few years to make changes, um, but in the midst of, of change and uncertainty, we can still be thankful and grateful because we serve a God who never changes and who is in control of everything that's going on. So I know I'm definitely thankful for that. This is a kind of a interesting Sunday. It's right after Thanksgiving. It's right at the time where we typically start to celebrate the Christmas time in, in real. Um, those of you who were listening to Christmas music back in October, uh, I don't know if there's any help for you, but, uh, but now Christmas is like almost here. And I think one of the main things that, that Christmas can remind us of, of course we have the little baby Jesus and all that stuff, but the real message of Christmas, I think, is deliverance, that this little baby came for a reason, and we sang about that. I don't know if you noticed some of the words of the songs that we sang, but they talked about how we need God to come to be with us, to be our deliverer, because without that, we're, we're hopeless, we're helpless. And that kind of brings us to the the main idea of what we're going to be looking at here today in the book of Esther. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series here, and I've titled the, the name of this message Deliverance, because that's what we see today in these chapters here. God delivers the people of Israel, the Jews. And so the, the main idea that I had for this morning was that deliverance comes through a counter-decree. We'll, we'll see that as we move through this passage but in the same way that deliverance for the Jews came through a counter-decree, Jesus is the counter-decree to sin and its effects. And so, even though this is Old Testament uh, account of what happened to the Jews, really, I hope that as we go through this, you'll see Jesus and you'll see the gospel as we, as we look and as we study this scripture. I want to start out with a, a question. Have you ever really had your life on the line? And I ask this, like, genuinely. Not just kind of, whew, like, that was close, but, like, seriously, have you ever been close to death or in a situation where you've had to really stop and consider what it means to die? You know, sometimes we, we use death uh, pretty lightly in our conversations. Uh, maybe you said something embarrassing in front of a group and, and you remark, oh man, I nearly died as you're telling your friend about the situation, the thing that happened. You know, we, we talk about death, we talk about dying, and a lot of the times it's just a, a light kind of thing. But death is... A, very serious subject. Um, I was kind of thinking about this, and, you know, in all reality, I think the closest I've had to come to this idea of really considering death 
was during a uh, car accident that I was involved in uh, shortly after I graduated high school. And when you're staring right into the grill of a semi-truck coming at you at 65 miles an hour, spoiler alert, I survived. Um, (laughs) But it kind of makes you stop and think and ponder and go, wow, you know, life is, is precious. Life is something that is um, not to be taken for granted. And I, I ask this, and I kind of go down this road because the situation for the Jews as we come to Esther chapter 8 is that they're under a very real sentence of death. If you remember back to uh, what we've gone through so far in the book of Esther, Haman was an evil dude, and he made a decree basically telling everyone throughout the uh, empire of Assyria that on a certain day, the 13th of the month of Adar, you could go out and you could kill any Jew you want. Doesn't matter, young, old, man, woman, child, kill them, and then take their stuff. And he did this out of spite and out of jealousy and revenge towards uh, a slight that he had um, thought that he (laughs) suffered from at the hands of Mordecai. But, you know, this was a terrible thing for him to do. And I think as, as I read through Esther... My tendency is, is to read that and go, okay, yeah, they're going to die, and, and just keep on going. But, but really what I want to stop and do is go, holy cow. Like, they were literally under a death sentence, and they knew when it was going to come, the 13th of Adar. And for those Jews alive at that time, I can't imagine what that would have been like to, in essence, have your death day spelled out for you. But here's the reality. Apart from Christ, that's every day. For the world around us who does not know Jesus as their Savior, every day is literally, could be the day that they not only die and depart from this life, but then go into an eternity away from the Lord, an eternal death. And so as we come to these chapters, I I just want us to start by feeling the the weight or the, the gravity of the situation, but not only their situation, but ours, really, because we don't know what tomorrow brings. However, if we have put our faith in Christ... We know who holds our future, and we know that it's sure, and we know that we have been forgiven through what Christ has done on the cross and through his resurrection. And so we can go through our days, not taking death lightly, but just knowing that death isn't the end. And that death for the true believer is a serious thing, but in the big picture, it's the doorway to life, which is an amazing hope that we can have in Christ, 
So as we talk about chapter 8 and 9, I just want you to keep that in mind as we go through this. And I want you to look as we go through this. Look for the gospel. Look for the theme of deliverance. And look for Jesus as we go through this. And again, just to remind you of our main point, deliverance comes through a counter-decree for the Jews. In the same way, Jesus is the counter-decree to sin and its effects. I want to do something kind of dangerous. I'm going to read through this passage. I'm going to try and read fast. But I want us to just have it uh, in our mind as, as we talk about some of the details. So, Esther... Chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 3, and we're going to try and speed through verse 17 of uh, chapter 9. So, follow along. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that, had, that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Hasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, at the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of, the, of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with a king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of that was of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, 
a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed a bunch of guys. <laughs> Verse 10, the ten sons of Haman and the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman's were, Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the village who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another." I think I said that wrong. We're reading through 19. <laughs> well, there we go. A lot happens, and this is a, a big chunk to, to tackle all at one time. Um, so I'm not going to cover all the details. <laughs> I'm just going to go through and kind of get some of the, the highlights of what was going on here. Um, but just a little bit of a recap all this is happening because of Haman, and we see, the last time we were in Esther, we, we saw how God began to turn things around. Um, Haman, if you remember, was invited to a dinner party at Esther's house, and he went there pretty happy. He thought he was going to be one of the guests of honor, and it turned out that he was sitting there in the very room with the king when Esther turned and said, this man is trying to kill me and my people. 
And if you can imagine the, the fear and trembling that came into Haman at that time, it, it, was, it was pretty great. And the king had to stand up and go outside and get some fresh air to think about, how am I going to respond to this? And as the king came back into the room, what was Haman doing? Well, he was begging and pleading with Esther for his life. However, it looked like he was trying to assault her. And so when the king came in and saw that, that was it. I mean, that was, if there was any hope for Haman, it was gone at that second. And he was immediately taken captive and killed and ended up being hanged on the very gallows that he had made to kill his supposed mortal enemy, Mordecai. And so we've seen how how God, in his providence and through these kind of crazy circumstances, has started to work out the deliverance for the people of the Jews. And it started with Esther and Mordecai, who are in a position where they are really able to help the Jews uh, in this situation. So Haman himself is out of the way, and yet there's still this decree. And we see that uh, these decrees that are made are, are not just things that can be overturned. Uh, the law of the Assyrians, once it was made, it was final. And so there's a little bit of a predicament because even though Haman is out of the way, the 13th of Adar is still coming. And the death sentence is still there. And so we see in the, the first section here of, of uh, chapter 8, there has to be some sort of countermeasure. And so 8 through 15 is all about what Esther and Mordecai are able to do to counter the, this horrible thing that is going to happen to the Jewish people. Some interesting things happen uh, in here that I want to just draw to your attention. Uh, first off, some people read through this and they, they see the, the counter-edict that is issued by Mordecai and Esther and say, well, this is just as cruel as what Haman said. I mean, if, if you look at it, Esther and Mordecai say kind of the same things. They say they, the Jews are allowed to kill and destroy and annihilate anyone who would come against them. And they talk about plundering. And they even mention like killing women and children, just like Haman had done. What's up with that? I mean, aren't they supposed to love the Lord? Aren't they supposed to be kind of the reasonable ones in this picture? And at first reading, it, it seems like, well, maybe they're going down this road of revenge just like Haman was. And yet, we have to remember that the king's edict was final. And in order to sufficiently counter what Haman had decreed, Mordecai and Esther had to go through and take every aspect of what was decreed against them and make something equally powerful that, that could essentially make that null and void. And so they use that same framework of kill, destroy, annihilate men and women, plundering, 
But they use it not because out of ruthlessness and out of uh, a chance for the Jews to go and exact their revenge, but out of the necessity to cancel what has been decreed by Haman. So the, the, uh, the wording of this counter-edict or counter-decree is very specific, and it hits all of the points that Haman's edict hits and makes them null and void. And interestingly, we'll, we'll see later on in chapter 9, when the day actually comes for the Jews to defend themselves, they actually don't follow through completely with what they could have. And another interesting thing and, a, and an important note in this counter-edict that Esther and Mordecai make is that Haman's decree was an offensive decree. It was, hey, you guys out there, get your swords, find the Jews, and kill them. You'll notice, though, that, that the decree that Mordecai and Esther make is not go out and kill randomly, but it is gather together, and you are allowed to defend yourselves. So in order for there to be any death as a result of this decree, it would have to be because people were coming to attack them and they were defending themselves. So, even though this is still a, a crazy situation, um, this is not Mordecai and Esther exacting revenge and being um, over the top in what they decree. This is just, we want to save our lives. We don't want to die. And God, in his sovereignty, has put Esther and Mordecai in this place where they are able to make this decree and have it signed with the king's signet ring and sent everywhere. Another interesting thing about this decree from chapter 8 is, do you remember what happened after Haman's decree? Especially in the, the city of Susa, we see in chapter 3 that it says after Haman's decree was read, there was just confusion. And there was chaos, and the people were like, what? What in the world is going on? We're supposed to kill the Jews who are in our town and in our city? And for some people, they probably read that and went, all right. But in general, there was this chaos and confusion that ensued after uh, Haman's decree. But after Mordecai's decree, what happens? Look at chapter 8, verse 15. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, blue and white with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And we see this contrast of the, the edict given by Haman, which caused chaos and, and confusion. And this edict causes what? Shouts of rejoice. And, and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And there was even an aspect of where the people were like, amen, hallelujah, I want to be a Jew. Um, and this is one of those aspects where even though God isn't specifically mentioned, how do you think that 
all of this has come about. And, and when it talks about the fear of the Jews falling on the people, doesn't that sound suspiciously kind of like the fear of the Lord falling on people? We don't know who wrote this book in particular, but maybe it was an unbeliever seeing the reaction of people and seeing people converting to Judaism and going, wow, this is really interesting. These Jews must be something. Not realizing that the only reason the Jews are anything is because they know the one God who really is something, who really is worthy of worship and honor and glory. And so in general, the, the reaction to this counter-decree was, was really good. The people rejoiced. Well, fast forward a bit, and into chapter 9, we see that the day is here. It was the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same. And now we see what happens on this day. And again, even though the, the decree, the counter-edict had gone out saying, Jews, you're allowed to defend yourselves, still this must have been a terrifying day. To be gathering together as Jews with your weapons, going, well, here we go. <laughs> and then to see that first person show up, armed and ready. I can't imagine what that would have been like. And yet, through these circumstances, we see that, that God really uh, protects the people of, Jew, of the Jews. Um, he sustains them through this day. And it talks about how many people the Jews were able to kill. And this is just a detail that isn't there, but there's no mention of how many Jews died. Now, why? I don't know. Were there some Jews that died? I don't know. Or was it that God was so much with them that they were able to defend themselves completely? I don't know. But it's interesting to, to try and, you know, think about that. And, and when we look at the account here, we see nothing of the Jews that were killed. We do see those that were killed who came and attacked. A few other details that, that should stand out to us um, in all of this day of, of bloodshed is that it's mentioned a couple of times that the Jews didn't plunder. If you look back at the decree, that was one thing that was allowed them. It was to counteract what Haman had said, and yet, the Jews don't go there. Anywhere in the province. Even though they were attacked, and even though they defended themselves, and they did kill many of their enemies, it says 75,000 were killed throughout all of the provinces. In the city of Susa itself, there were 500 who were killed, and yet they don't follow through with going and plundering these families. 
plundering the households. They don't go through with killing the women and children. If you notice in the list of those who are killed on this day, it's 500 men from the city of Susa, and it's 75,000 men elsewhere throughout all the provinces. And so we, we kind of <laughs> infer that they weren't on a rampage here. They weren't going out and pillaging the cities. They were gathered together as they were to be, defending themselves, and only killing those armed men who were coming against them. And even though they had permission, technically, they didn't follow through with those things, which I think it speaks to... Uh, <laughs> the nature of the Jewish attitude in this was not uh, we want to kill everybody. It was, no, we just would like to live. <laughs> that would be great. And we see, too, that, that God provides defense for them, and yet God is, is still good to the Assyrians in this, in that he doesn't use the Jews to wipe out the Assyrian nation in this. It's just a protection of his people. It's a deliverance of his people from incredible circumstances. So we have the people gather. They, they defend themselves. They don't follow through with what they could have follow, followed through with. Did I say that right? Could have followed through with. And the result is that they're delivered. But then, what about this, this last section here, verses 16 through 19? Esther makes a, a strange request. Uh, after the reports of, of the Jews being able to defend themselves start coming in, uh, King Ahasuerus comes to Esther and says, hey, again, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. And Esther asks for two things. She says, let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows, and can we have an extra day? Now again, what is this about? Has she just not had enough killing? Well, if you can, again, think about the circumstances, where did Haman live? Well, he lived in the city of Susa. Where do you think the resistance or the... the animosity towards the Jews was probably the greatest. Well, probably in the city of Susa. And as they're fighting and as they're defending themselves, my guess, this is Ryan conjecture, but my guess is that they saw the need, this isn't going to be over in one day. You know, these people who are coming against us are serious and they're going to be back tomorrow. So, please, king, can we have another day? Yeah, but what about the, the whole hanging Haman's sons up? Like, what is that? Is that revenge? Could be. Or could it be that she wanted that to be a sign that this is done? Like, don't, don't come tomorrow. You see your ten leaders, the sons of Haman, who most likely would have led the rebellion there in the city of Susa, they're dead. They're right here. Stop. 
However, we see that a second day was necessary, and, and we see that it's necessary because on that day, 300 more men were killed. And that's, these death numbers are at least, well, they are 300 men were killed, but there were probably more people coming to attack. And again, we see God's deliverance physically in this and God's goodness in giving them that extra day to be able to finally quench all the bloodlust that was going on in the city. Well, that's our, our text, and those are just a, a few interesting tidbits of information for you. I've got a lot more, so we can talk afterwards if, if you want to. Um, but I want to start kind of turning our minds towards the, the gospel implications of all of this. And I, I put a three-point outline in your notes, and really I should have a, a fourth point that you could title it Gospel Implications. I don't, it's not going to be up there. Pretend it is. What are we to make of all of this? And do we see anything good in all of this killing, in these decrees? Well, I think we do. There are several avenues that, that we could go down to see the, the goodness of God in this situation, but I'd like to just look specifically at the, the two decrees. First off, I, I see the gospel in Haman's decree. Now, that may sound strange to see it in Haman's decree, um, but one of the aspects of the gospel message that we, we really have to start with is the idea that we are under a death sentence. This is one of the, the hardest things for people to grasp because naturally we are born thinking, I'm an okay person. I mean, I'm not really that bad, am I? To deserve the wrath of God? I mean, look at what I do. I'm a hard worker, I'm nice to people, I don't have any enemies. I give to the Salvation Army. I'm a good person. But the reality is, no, you're not. And this is where the gospel has to start with a realization that we are under a death sentence. Just like the Jews were from Haman, we have a death sentence, but it's way more serious than anything that Haman could have ever thought up. Psalm 51 is a, an interesting psalm. It was written by King David after his sin with Bathsheba and after having Uriah murdered. And in Psalm 51, we, we see this interesting aspect of David's realization of his own sin. And he says this, talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What David is saying is, I've done some really horrible things. I've committed adultery. 
I've murdered, and yet the greatest effect that these sins have are not relational. They're not with the people around me. The greatest thing that this points out in my life is that I have sinned against you. And that's what I I hope we understand and hope we see is that any sin, no matter how big or how small, ultimately the, the seriousness of it is not that it affects other people, but that it is contrary to who God is and contrary to how he made us to be. And guess what? We're all sinners. Again, David says in uh, Psalm 139 that even in his mother's womb, he was conceived in sin. From the very start, he was tainted with, with this sin nature. It's something that he had to deal with, and it's something that we have to deal with. And if you think, well, you know, David, I mean, he murdered, he committed adultery. I haven't done that. Well, guess what? That's the point of what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. If you read Matthew chapter 5, you see Jesus saying this. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Anybody ever been angry? Come on. Anyone ever been angry? Guess what? Murder. Now, it's not exactly the same, but what Jesus is saying is, in respect to God, anger, murder, same. Sin and worthy of judgment. Not only that, but verse 27 of Matthew 5 says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now let's add woman and men there. Anybody ever lustful thought? Adultery. No, it's not the exact same sin, but in a salvation perspective and in a judgment perspective, same. You deserve judgment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And the really severe thing about this is Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And this just isn't physical death, it's eternal death, separation from God. Sin is a serious thing, and we are all under the death sentence of sin, just like the Jews were under the death sentence of Haman. However, that's where the gospel starts, with really bad news, and we need to come to grips with it But then the gospel moves on to some really good news. And 
in the same way that we see this counter-decree or counter-edict from Mordecai and Esther that, that effectively cancels out Haman's, we see the same thing in the gospel. Through Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. We have freedom from judgment because He took our judgment on Himself on the cross. Where we once only had hope of death, through the resurrection we have hope of life in Him. And we see how Jesus in His life and His ministry, His death, His resurrection, takes all of the effects of sin and all of its consequences and makes them null and void. He's conquered sin and death. And so through faith in Christ, in essence, we are delivered. We are delivered from the effects of sin. We are delivered from death to life. And wow, (laughs) isn't that amazing? That's the good news of the gospel. And it's not a perfect picture here in Esther, but it is a picture of the deliverance that that God gives to his people. They were under the sentence of death, but through crazy circumstances, ended up alive with hope of a future. And that's the message of the gospel, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet... Praise be to God, he sent Jesus to take that penalty of our sin on himself to prove that his sacrifice of sin was effective through the resurrection. If it weren't effective, if it didn't completely satisfy the wrath of God, he wouldn't have come up from the grave. But he did because he's victorious. And praise God that simply through faith in Christ, we gain that victory too. And that is something that, that we should rejoice in and something that we, we see here. We'll get to this next time I, I talk, but the result of this deliverance in the book of Esther is rejoicing. It's a holiday. It, it's feasting and, and singing and praising God and all this stuff. And how often do we wake up in the morning and go, Ugh, another morning. Yet, if you've put your faith in Christ, hallelujah, praise God, it's another day. Right? That should be us. How often is it not? And... It's sad, and I put myself in that, and this is why it's important for us to, to reflect on the gospel and, and who God is and what he's done every single day because this ought to move us to rejoice in our salvation and not just rejoice in our salvation, but rejoice in the one who saved us, God who justly could punish us has given us freedom in Christ. So, hopefully as we come away from uh, Esther this morning, 
one of the things that I would like us to see, like myself to see, is just to come to understand the gravity of the situation that we were in because of our sin. We were under a death sentence. Haman's decree is nothing compared to eternal punishment in hell. And that's where we all were. But through simple faith in Christ, we can be free from that. And so the question comes, well, how thankful are we for that? And do we live our lives in light of that thankfulness, in light of what God has done for us? Are we excited and compelled to tell those who we know don't believe in Jesus about the good news that's available for them? There are all kinds of day-to-day applications that we can take from this joy that we should have because of the deliverance that God has worked for us. And so I come back to the main point, that this deliverance that we see in Esther, it comes through a counter-decree, and in the same way, Jesus is that counter-decree for the death sentence of sin that we are all under. Have you believed? Have you put your faith in him? And if you have, do you live like it? It's a great picture of what God has done for us through Christ. Is God specifically mentioned in Esther? No. But do you see him? Hopefully you do, because he's there. Will you pray? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, time to consider who you are and what you have done for us through Christ. We thank you for this account of the, the deliverance of the people of Israel. And Lord, we confess that we need you to be our Savior. And we thank you that for those of us who have, who have confessed our sin and see the need of a Savior, that, that you freely give us deliverance from our sin. God, that is so amazing, too amazing for us to really comprehend, but help us to live our lives in appreciation and in gratitude for what you have done for us through Christ. And Lord, as we uh, finish out our service by singing, yet not I, but through Christ in me, will you again help us to praise your name for what you have done for us because you are worthy. Without Christ, we are nothing. With him, we have everything, and we are thankful for that. We pray this in your name. Amen.